Hi folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today, it's Friday, February the 15th, 2019. This is episode 2382 of the Survival Podcast. I hope you had a happy and productive overpriced candy day yesterday. That's what I call Valentine's Day. Um... I got to put out a video last night that I could have titled Reason Number 137, My Life is Better Than Yours. For, for, for Valentine's Day, what Dorothy and I did last night, uh, we just, it just so happened her order of cheese came in. Yeah, cheese. I bought her 20 pounds of cheese, uh, about half of an aged Gouda and half of a really awesome Dutch cheese called Leiden. And uh, we spent our Valentine's evening um, vacuum sealing uh, cheese because it came in big wheels, right? I mean, like, so I had to cut it up for her. And so I got this video of her uh, vacuum sealing her cheese, uh, being completely content with that being a Valentine's Day evening. That's a prepper woman's Valentine's, I guess. Anyway, it was great. We had a good time. I hope you guys had a good time, whatever you did with that day, that Hallmark holiday. Um, with that, let's go ahead and tell you what we're going to be talking about with the expert council today. I got Gary Collins on eating at home versus cooking out. <laughs> cooking at home versus eating out. It's going to be one of those shows. Uh, protecting your children from abduction from new expert council member, Officer Steve Wise. Cooking with fresh herbs from Keith Snow. Control of fleas from a full life cycle approach with Dr. Kelly. Dealing with hard-starting vehicles in cold weather with Derek Bonpietro, and I think that's how you say his name. I'm going to find out. That's also our new uh, expert council member. It's taken over for Charles the Humble Mechanic because Charles just has way too much going on in his life out there to, uh, to be consistent with the expert council stuff. The story behind high bank interest rates from John Pugliano. We got restoring good, back, good gut bacteria after antibiotic use from Doc Bones. Then for my piece today, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to do something just a little bit fun and propose an idea that probably won't actually happen, but I thought maybe we would get people thinking. I'm not going to tell you what it is now. You'll have to wait to the end of the episode to find out, but it has to do with satire. Think sites like Babylon being the onion, and uh, when we get to that, we'll talk about it. Uh, with that, without further ado, let's go headlong into it and start out with a segment uh, from Gary Collins on how to uh, how to live a better life by eating better and specifically doing that by learning to cook and cooking your own meals at home instead of eating out. With that, hey man, Gary, take it away. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things simple living, living off the grid, paleo primal health, just living a better life, exercise, nutrition, all kinds of good. Just non-stop topics. Make sure to go check out my uh, books, uh, my Going Off the Grid series and the Simple Life series available on Amazon and my website. But today I want to talk about a little bit of financial and health. I'm going to be writing a chapter about this very soon in an upcoming book. And I want to talk about how being unhealthy ruins your finances in one way. 
and here's one way is productivity. And I've, uh, I'm actually working with authors right now, other authors about health. Authors are terrible health wise, just are. Um, a lot of sedentary sitting in front of the computer, um, not getting a lot of exercise, not eating healthy. So not getting out in the sun, a lot of issues. But I've been working with them talking about productivity. And you talk to any author who went from being unhealthy to healthy, and the first thing they say is, oh, I, I can write far more material and better material than I did before. But back to the finances, what I always tell people is eating healthy long-term is cheaper than going out shopping or going out eating out all the time. I've met people who literally don't have anything in their refrigerator but ketchup. They eat all their meals out. It's expensive. Today, eating in restaurants, even fast food, it's expensive. And I tell people... I, I have run this test numerous times over the years, especially with clients, and I always tell them, We're go you go to your favorite fast food restaurant, go get your food, your meal, and come home, and we'll compare how much your meal cost and how much time it took you to go get it, sit through drive through walk in, whatever, sit in traffic, as opposed to me cooking a 100% organic, healthy meal. I have won 100% of the time my meal is cheaper, unless I'm going, you know, a 24 ounce ribeye or something. But overall, a general meal, far cheaper. It takes me far less time to prepare it, sit down, eat it, clean my dishes, and move on. Financially, I've watched people spend three grand or more eating out a month, and they have no idea where their money's going. None. I tell them it's going right, it's going right in your mouth and out your butt is where it's going. And, and with that eating, I'm not saying never eat out. I am not saying that I eat out myself every once in a while. It just tends to not make me not feel so good. So I don't do it all that often is you will save a lot of money and your health by preparing your own meals. That means you got to go shop, pick out the healthy foods, not a bunch of junk in packages and frozen and, you know, uh, all that stuff, real food, go to a farmer's market. You know, that's how you do it. A little advice there on how to save money and save your health and be more productive. Again, guys, go to www.thesimplelifenow.com. Yeah, I'm going to say that it's always less to eat at home than it is to eat out. If you eat the same thing, you know, he mentioned, well, you know, unless it's like a 24-ounce ribeye, yeah, go get yourself a good quality 24-ounce ribeye in a steakhouse. And it's going to be more than, than, than making the best, most beautiful 20. It'll be more than if you went, and there's a company I'm working with right now that has these bags for dry aging. If you took, it went to, like, you know, a good meat market and got yourself an entire rib loin and stuck it in one of those bags, and those bags are kind of expensive. That's why I'm working to try to get you guys a, a discount from this company that makes these things. And you let that thing sit in your refrigerator for 60 days to dry age it, and then you trimmed it, and then you cut it an inch and three-quarters thick, the most beautiful ribeyes you can imagine after you trimmed off all of what you got to trim off after you dry age. And you cooked it however you want to cook it. It will be as good or better than any steak you're going to eat in a steakhouse, and it's still going to cost you less. I mean, there is no way you ever lose by eating at home. I'm not a prude there, though. The guys that follow me on social media know that Dorothy and I enjoy eating out. And we, and we, the thing about eating out for us is you will never see a picture of us at a McDonald's. 
<laughs> you probably won't see a picture of us at like most of your kind of mid-tier, low-tier chain restaurants. You're not going to see us at Applebee's or Chili's unless we're stuck in an airport. You know, we go to places like Gloria's, which is really, really nice place, a Riata downtown. Occasionally, you might catch me in a P.F. Chang's, though, with paleo eating, it's a lot harder. But we enjoy places like that. I enjoy places that might be a chain, but that means they have five locally, you know. Um, and I, I don't have a problem with it. I do have a problem with it in two different ways. People that tell me they're broke, but they eat out five, six, twelve times a month, however they're eating out. And then the other one is people that live on fast food. I think it's probably the worst thing you can do for yourself on the planet right now. Um, short of like drinking, you know, roundup out of a bottle or something. It is just absolutely devastating to the health of Americans. And people think they save money because they order off the dollar menu or whatever. And, and man, I, and I know people. We have, I guess you'd call second-tier family. There's one group over there. They literally eat nothing that's prepared in the home. Like the only food that's in the house are like bags of chips and shit like that. They eat every single meal out. I'm pretty sure that neither the husband nor the wife know how to cook. And that is very dangerous from a, just so many different angles. Uh, and it's so unhealthy, and it's just... You, you know, I look at, in that particular group, the kids. And the kids aren't super fat yet, but they all have that pudgy look. You know what I'm talking about? And some of them are pretty young yet. You know, they're like you know, kindergarten, first grade-ish, and have that pudgy look already. And you just think, these kids don't have a chance. If this is you, change it for the sake of your family, if not for yourself. But remember... Taking care of yourself is part of taking care of your family. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. Um, speaking of taking care of kids, uh, Officer Steve Wise here has a segment for us on protecting kids from abduction uh, in, in some pretty horrific ways, too, You know where it's out in public in the, in the dead open and distracting parents and all. Uh, and it does happen. Steve, what can we do to make sure we keep those kids safe? Greetings, everyone. My name is Steve Wise, and I'm joining the TSP Expert Console as a retired law enforcement officer to answer your law enforcement-related questions. I'm 12 years removed from my law enforcement uh, duties, but uh, I'll endeavor to give you the best answers that are fair and, and hopefully keep you out of trouble. Today's question is coming from Matt. Matt asks, how could my wife prepare to defend our children and herself in a public setting such as a retail store? Details. There have been another wave of child abduction warnings going around the Internet. The MO changes slightly, but the stories are at retail stores like Walmart or at a grocery store. A person will pretend to be a friend and admire the children and distract the single mother who is shopping with her children. A seemingly unrelated person will then move in, try to abduct the child or more the child. From research, it seems that some of these stories are real, but many of these are blown out of proportion or outright lies. Having said that, we live a couple hours from Portland, Maine, where human trafficking is a real legitimate problem. And the stories have worried my wife. Is there any advice you could give or things you could recommend to help in a situation like this? We're not always practical to shop with it's not always practical to shop without our kids or for us to go shopping together so pepper spray concealed weapon is defensive shopping a thing and that's coming from matt now matt let's let me first start off by offering some 
the general legal disclaimer here. The laws in each state and jurisdiction is going to vary. Your ability to carry things like pepper spray or carry concealed weapon, those are going to change for jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So you're going to have to look at those uh, in your particular jurisdiction. And I'm going to provide my answers based on my opinion and how I would handle the situation as a law enforcement officer and how I would react to if uh, confronted in the same situations. So in my law enforcement career, I actually did a lot of work with a child protective unit uh, as a detective. We investigated cases where children were missing, and and during that six-year time frame, I only know of one true kidnapping, and that's at a population base of over 6 million residents. So we are also a well-known area for sex trafficking. The the fact that they – in fact, they just busted a group a couple days ago – In the single kidnapping case that I had, it was a situation where the mother let another woman watch her child who was sick at the time because the daycare center would not take the sick child. And the mother had a requirement to go to work, and she couldn't figure out what else to do. And it's not like she didn't know the woman. They had been to church together. So this was not a typical stranger kidnapping situation. So one in six years and this was a more of a, a semi-relationship type uh, situation. So I've also worked cases where the children were trafficked. Uh, in these cases, the, the, it's normally a runaway child that were trying to escape from one reality and to get somewhere else that they thought was better. These girls would be end up lured away from their uh, homes uh, with promises to get simple things like their hair and nails done. These kids were coming from truly broken homes. So, but even with all that, yes, stranger abductions do occur, but they are very rare. So let's break down some facts and and maybe we'll help your wife feel a little bit better about the whole situation. In 2018, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or in law enforcement, we call it NICMIC, um, they assisted law enforcement and their families with more than 25,000 cases of missing children. Yes, that sounds like a lot, but let's break down the statistics. 92% of that 25,000 were runaways. 4% were family abductions. This is, you know, who's got custody of the kids type stuff. 3% of the critically missing were young adults ages 18 through 20 that uh, they probably have a a mental disorder or something like that where they are still listed as children. 1% were lost injured or otherwise missing, you know, they went out and played and got lost in the woods type scenario, and less than 1% were non-family abductions. So of the more than 23,500 runaways reported by to NITMIC in 2018, one in seven of those actual runaways were a victim of sex trafficking. So even if you end up that's doing a little more research and I found another website and they boast a very you know sensational figure 1400 children kidnapped each year but when you read through the website they come back and say well 1200 of those are family members and unfortunately in at least this state um, a family abduction is not considered kidnapping so that you can use a figure of less than 250 children are taken by strangers out of a population of 327 million in the United States. So the odds of your children being kidnapped are really low. Now, these do, these stats uh, do not preclude you from being reasonably prepared and mindful of your environment. 
I did like your con- comment of defensive shopping, uh, but um, <laughs> but it's less uh, defensive and more situational awareness. Item one, if you're out in a crowd with your children, put your phone away. Many people walk around all day and never look up. It's your job to be situationally prepared and aware of what's going on around you. Your job is to take care of your kids first. Shopping a second, answering questions, or anything else is going to be a far distant third or fourth down the list. If you ever have taken any self-defensive classes, they will work with you on being self-aware. And that's a good thing for your wife and children to do anyway. It's not going to work 100% of the time, but the more training you have, the more aware you'll become. Also, I mentioned the children. If they're old enough, it's hey, take them to a self-defense class. Something like Krav Maga or Judo, anything along these lines. They teach awareness to children as well. Um, it could be a family event. Everybody goes. I took my granddaughter to do Krav Maga training, and you know, I feel sorry if anybody actually tries to do something to her. So make it a family affair, and uh, you know, hey, you might be proud of the kids. They might be able to take care of themselves. So do be careful of the stranger danger classes that used to be common about a decade ago. Uh, children get stuck on the stranger, quote-unquote stranger part of this, being something scary. You know, these people are strangers because they're scary. Well, the people that try to quietly abduct children are seldom looking scary. They look like anybody else in the crowd. They'll try to tell your children all of the and don't try to tell your children all the possible ruses that, that these stranger folks use because you'll end up missing one. And, and a real stranger um, will use a different ruse and it, your child will think, well, that's not one I was trained about, so this one's okay. So another thing you could do is teaching your children safe words. To your, uh, This is just another tool. If somebody tries to come pick your child up, they must know the safe word. And a parent should already have introduced the pickup person to the child in advance. Don't don't take that, you know, just don't accept a word by itself. Introduce the child in advance. Schools should also have a list of approved people to pick up kids, and, and that's another common place where children get picked up. So you can even give them a safe word if necessary. Now, cell phones. They really are a double-edged sword when it comes to your kid. If you've got responsible enough kids uh, to, the, that they will keep their cell phone in the pocket when they're in a crowd, the cell phone can be used as an emergency communications device. The child can place 911 calls. You can have software loaded on it that will help you track the child if they get out of your hands. Uh, it's But if the children are just playing on their phones and not paying attention, then it becomes a problem. So you're going to have to judge your children's responsibility level, and uh, remember, it's your job to enforce that phone-in-the-pocket rule. There are also apps, as I mentioned, that track that can track cell phones. You can set safe areas where the children can go in and out of. If they go outside those boundaries, it will alert you. This can be great for slightly older children that when you leave the home, they might wander outside. Uh, generally, they, they're not going to leave their phone at the house. Now, for really run, young children, there are tracking tags, and yes, they make them for dogs too, um, that can be worn or attached to their clothing, and some look like watches, and some even have apps that uh, the kids can use. Uh, some are washable, and others require long-term contracts. So you're, divi- you're, you're going to vary in what you're going to get in that space, but they're available as well, and they have 
GPS tracking built into them. So I'm going to give Jack some links to some websites I found where they pulled up the top 10 10 apps for your cell phone or top 10 devices that you might use. Um, now, remember, I've never used any of these devices myself, so I don't want to you know, put much uh, value on these things. But please remember, these are not replacements for being a parent. Pay attention to your kids, and don't let these devices become your babysitter. All right. Now, if you ever are in a situation in a store or something like that, and you feel like somebody is trying to distract you, pardon yourself and say, hey, let me get my kids, and and we'll talk after that. Don't get distracted from your job of being the parent and keeping your family and getting them home safe. Now, you mentioned things like pepper spray, so let's, let's talk about weapons. I will say that anything you carry also carries responsibility that you train with it. The first time you pull OC spray or oleum capsicum spray or pepper spray out of your pocket or purse should not be the time you're confronting the individual that you're going to spray. They do sell training OC spray cans that shoot water. And unless the spray can is carried in a particular holder, the cans can get turned all sorts of different directions in a purse or in a pocket, and you may not get it pointed in the right direction, and you end up spraying yourself. So it's better to have a holder that keeps the OC can spray pointed in the correct direction so you can pull it out and know where it's going when you pull it and point it in the right direction. If your wife is a person who wants to choose a firearm, I'm going to say that's okay. I like firearms. Um, but make sure you spend the time for training. This is not just the weapons first level training that you might get for a concealed carry permit. This is beyond, you know, the, the bullets come out this end and you squeeze the trigger. You want to try to find somebody that does a tactical or concealed carry course that is more advanced. You want her working the weapon and holster in real world type scenarios. Don't spend $500 on a firearm and only $50 for training. I'd rather see you spend three times or four times as much on the training. Then make sure you update that training annually, if not more often. Finally, for long-term security, keep your family together and happy. Broken families are the ones that lead to a lot of these runaways and, and these broken homes. This can lead to their children not wanting to hear mom and dad argue again, and then they end up in these situations where they feel abandoned, and they'll do anything to be felt made feel special again. So if your children are not happy in the home, they will less likely to run away and end up as a victim. I hope this answers some of your questions, and and uh, please let us know if uh, there's anything else we can do. This is Steve Wise. Catch you next week. Good and very complete answer there. What a little over the time limit for expert council members. I have the expert council on a hard. If it's over 10 minutes, it gets kicked back to you rule at this point. Uh, but uh, I let that one go a couple extra minutes because when I brought Steve on, I didn't inform him completely and give him a proper briefing. So I thought we were not going to make him re-record that one. But I do have all of the expert council on it. Try to hit seven to eight minutes top side i'll give you 10 but when i gave them 12 many of them you guys know who you were we're taking like 18 and i was in there editing it and cutting out and it took me 25 minutes to make your piece fit the timeline and yeah so we're on a 10 minute cycle here now guys anyway next up got a question for chef keith snow on cooking with herbs specifically fresh herbs 
Hey, Jeff Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and the Harvest Eating Podcast. Matthew, uh, great question here, and uh, thank you for all the detail. Now, um, one thing to understand when you're cooking, let's just tackle the herbs first. When you're cooking with herbs, you need to match up the technique with the herb. For instance, long, slow braises uh, are wonderful, and you can cook all kinds of meats and stuff in there and vegetables. But trying to use an herb in the beginning of cooking, let's say parsley or tarragon or basil, cilantro, these type of sort of more tender um, herbs are just not going to have any flavor towards the end of that cooking process. You're just going to wind up with some green stems in there and leaves, um, but not much flavor. Uh, juxtapose that with something like um, oregano or sage, thyme, rosemary, lavender, these more um, woody type herbs that have a significant stem, um, these can take a long cook. So let's say you're going to do a, I don't know, a, a beef shank with a bunch of vegetables in some beef stock. You're going to cook it, you know, in a braising type situation for three or four hours, whatever it might be. Maybe using some wonderful thyme or even some oregano in there um, can produce terrific results with a lot of flavor from the herbs. Now, that is just some basics. Now, if you were to take um, something lighter, let's just let's think of a situation where you're looking for more of a light, citrusy, bright, summery type effect. Uh, maybe you could take, let's say you're grilling some salmon. So you grill this salmon off, and um, while it's grilling, you take a little bit of olive oil with maybe some lemon juice, chili flakes. Um, black sesame seeds, lemon zest, and a bunch of cilantro or parsley or even tarragon. Mince those up um, raw, put them in this little concoction of liquid, and as that beautiful piece of salmon sears and grills, when it comes off and it's nice, uh, nice and hot, you spoon that mixture over it, and you're going to have just an, an explosion of a bright kind of light flavor. If you did the same thing and you put in all thyme or rosemary, you're going to have something that's just completely disjointed. So hopefully this explanation is sort of working for you. And on the spice front, um, those of you that listen to me pitch my spices all the time over at HarvestEating.com, we do sell some spice blends. So I'm quite familiar with cooking with um, dry spices. And usually, let's just say, for instance, you're making, I don't know, tomato sauce. In the beginning, instead of using freshly minced garlic, uh, maybe you didn't have any or you ran out. You certainly can use some garlic powder, but you really have to back off because the dried um, spices like this, uh, like garlic and onion powder and all these things, they're pretty pungent. So let's just say I had two garlic cloves. If I took the weight of two garlic cloves and matched it with the weight of garlic powder, you probably couldn't even eat it. It would be so garlicky. So you don't need a pinch of those dry things, you know, onion powder, that kind of stuff. Um, another thing to keep in mind is different styles, like we talk about barbecue, so you can make ribs in the Carolinas where they're usually going to be slathered in sauce and, you know, they would be dry rubbed and then cooked and slathered in a sauce. That's one way to do it. Or if you go over to like Memphis, a lot of times they'll have ribs that are rubbed 
and they're smoked slowly and then they're not really sauced but what they are is is uh they're they're kind of powdered with the with the rub on top so you get a dry rub on top so it's a dose of raw spices on the top of that meat um sure if you want to dip it in a little sauce you can but these are just different ways to use those so there is um there is technique involved, but I would say the, the biggest issue of your question here is the right herb with the right cooking technique. So in the, in the example, some grilling is generally going to be a faster technique. Using the lighter herbs in whatever format you plan on doing it um, will work a little better than trying to put those lighter herbs in a braise or a stew or, or you know pressure cooker, um, a soup. That doesn't work quite as well. I know um, I've got a history of making um, tomato sauces, um, you know, in the commercial market, and I was always extremely particular at the factories that I contracted with that, you know, herbs like parsley and basil, those were to be added in the last 10 minutes of cooking. That way we retain flavor. If, the, if those were added in the beginning, it's just a waste. So keep that in mind, Matthew, but I can tell from your answer that you are on your way to becoming a wonderful cook. So with that, everyone listening, have a great weekend. Thanks so much, Jack, for letting me contribute and keep asking the questions, folks. Take care. Um, far be it for me to disagree with the classically trained chef who has worked as an executive chef at some really high-end restaurants, but I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it in the opening comments. And I both agree and disagree with the opening comments about certain herbs not holding up or providing flavor on something like a long, slow braise or a soup or a stew that cooks for a long time. There's no doubt that if you want kind of that fresh burst of flavor from something like a cilantro in a chili or a parsley in a stew that you absolutely do want to include fresh herbs at the end of that, maybe on a steaming plate and let it just simply steam cook a little bit. I, I, I totally agree with that. The concept, though, that using these herbs in something like a long, slow braiser to cook will not render uh, significant flavor to the cook itself, specifically the underlying sauce, is just not true. And I know it's not true because I cook like that all the time. And there are certain things you can do that let you use generally a lot of the herbs that, you, that people typically, or parts of herbs that people throw away. Let's take cilantro, for instance. When I cook chili, I use quite a bit of cilantro. And I'll take a whole bunch of cilantro, and I will cut the leaves off and then chop them up. I'll actually just kind of cut them off and leave them alone because they keep better if you don't chop them up right away. And that will leave you with this whole bunch of stems. Now, what most people do with that bunch of stems is throw it away. I will finally, and I mean finally, chop that up and throw that in my chili, you know, like right at the very beginning. And I'll simmer that through. And there is an incredible amount of flavor in the stems. And because they're in there for that long cook, they do cook, they cook down and they don't they're not stringy or anything. Plus, the fine slice that I put on them, they wouldn't be anyway. I mean, the stems of cilantro are completely edible. If you leave them big, you're just not going to like it because of texture, not flavor. But there's no doubt that there's you know if we don't have cilantro and you make chili, you can tell the difference. The flavor profile changes because of the way it's incorporated with the food, but it definitely makes a difference. With stews, I do the same thing with parsley. I save the majority of the parsley for the end, but I finally slice the stems and I cook them into the stew. 
and they bring kind of a, a very similar flavor, but a little bit more earthy flavor, like a celery flavor. And I think that many herbs, when we use them, they have that effect in a long, slow cook, but you don't get that fresh herb flavor. You get a deep underlying contribution to the dish as a whole. So I think there's a place for both. That's my opinion. That's how I cook. You can do what you want with that information. Overall, I agree with what he's saying. I just disagree with the concept of not using these things, specifically the part that most people would then toss out as flavor contributors. It, it would be to me like saying, well, if you take a whole bunch of carrots and celery and onion, maybe some parsnip, and you boil that for a really long time, the vegetable stock you get won't have any flavor from the vegetables. It just it doesn't make sense to me. All right, next up, uh, I have a question for Dr. Kelly, our DVM on staff at the Expert Council on flea control, and she's going to talk about coming at it from a life cycle approach. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly um, here to answer all your furry pet questions. And today's question is from the Think Line that Jack passed on to me from Zach in East Texas. And he was wondering what to do for flea control, both on pets and outdoors. And the key to dealing with fleas is really about understanding their life cycle. And there's four stages to that. And there's the egg, the larval stage, pupae, and the adult. Now, fleas on your pet, when they will lay eggs on the hair coat of the animals that then fall off your pet into your home or the environment outside. And then out of these little eggs hatch larvae, which grow up in the pet's environment, indoors or out, feeding on adult flea feces, which is just the digested blood that falls out of the hair coat of the pet. Um, it's that little blackish brown debris you see on the skin and hair of animals with fleas. And then eventually the larvae spin a cocoon to go on to the next stage, and they love to do this in carpet. Um, pupae are super hardy. They are resistant to freezing, drying, insecticides. They can even lie dormant for many months um, without dying. And eventually, though, they will hatch when the timing's right, and the new fleas can begin feeding within hours of finding a dog or cat. And if conditions are right, this flea life cycle can be completed in as little as three weeks. So you can get a lot of fleas really fast. And the basic idea with treatment is attacking as many life stages as you can using a combo of treating the pet and the environment. So the first part is treating the pet. With flea medications, they have come a long way from the days of flea dips and flea shampoos and the over-the-counter collars that they used to have. Um, now, three main options are topical, oral, or collars. As far as collars go, I think the old-style flea collars do not work that well. Um, you're still going to get a lot of fleas still around. Um, there was a newer prescription one called Soresto that does seem to work. And the Prevent Tick collars, I do think work for ticks. So those would be the two exceptions to the collars. Um, as far as topical medications, that's products like Frontline, um, which has been an over-the-counter product for quite some time after being prescription initially. And if you use a topical, I would go with prescription or one that used to be a prescription, just because I think those are more effective. Um, these work, the Frontline especially works because it's It's distributing on the animal's skin using the pet's own natural oils to move it around. Um, and this is why they say not to bathe the pet two days before or after applying. Um, while it's water-resistant, it's not waterproof. And if you bathe your dog frequently, even just once a week, or you have a hunting dog that's in the water a lot, it's not going to be as effective by the end of the month. So that's something to watch out for with these topicals. Um, I would say the Frontline Spray I do think is particularly useful um, if you need to get it, if you're trying to get it 
placed around the dog better if you're having trouble with that. Or if you have a super tiny dog, because it's a pump per spray per pound, so you can just use a tiny amount for a little dog. Um, other ones you'll frequently see at the store include things like Advantage, Advantix, and that kind of stuff. Um, here I'm going to point out one of the golden rules, since we're mentioning Advantix, about flea control. And you want to never, ever put a flea product meant for a dog onto a cat. Any product that has a concentrated dose of permethrin should never be put on the cat as it can kill them. So you have to be cautious that a cat even isn't laying around your dog immediately after applying one of those products, just in case the cat gets any on itself. Um, then there's the oral flea medications. These are really my favorite, and it's what I have my own dog on. Um, they kill fleas very quickly, and you don't have the mess with trying to get down to the skin through the fur to apply a product, and you don't have to deal with any oil slick effect on the hair or kids grabbing and touching it after you put it on. Um, the newer isoxazoline drugs, like Nexgard, which is what my dog is on, and Semperica, work very well at killing fleas, ticks, and even are effective against some mites. Um, however, I will caution that these are not right for all dogs, um, as there have been rare cases of neurologic side effects in some dogs, such as seizures and head tremors and things. Now, when this happens, stopping the medication usually resolves any issue, um, but you have to weigh the benefits of an oral medication against possible other side effects and everything. So while I do really like them, I don't think they're for everyone. Um, it's important if you're trying to prevent fleas from getting in the house or getting rid of them that all animals in the household are on consistent flea control. Often if we're having trouble resolving a flea issue in a household, it will come out that there's a secret cat or a family member's pet in the house that we didn't know about that's not on flea control. So they're acting as a reservoir. Um, we can talk about favorite products all day long, but at the end of the day, most products will work if you're used at the appropriate interval and on all pets in the household. Um, speaking of the interval on medications, usually it's 30 days. Some of them are up to every three months, depending. Um, but if you're in a place such as the southeastern United States, especially around Florida, where fleas are basically the official state parasite because they're so common, you may want to ask your vet about using multiple products together um, or more frequent off-label dosing of products um, in order to really get a handle on a flea infestation. Um, but definitely talk to your vet because there's some you can pair together and some that you shouldn't and that sort of thing. Um, if you're dealing with a flea problem, you definitely want to wash all bedding. Um, you want to vacuum all the carpets and upholstery, anywhere the animal is laying, most spending most of their time. And then you want to discard the vacuum bag or clean out the canister so that the flea eggs don't hatch in there and then you spread it throughout your house. Um, if you're spraying any of the surfaces um, with a product like Cyphotrol or something, you want to spray until damp and make sure you get under furniture. That's really where the things like to be, um, the larvae, because they, they're up underneath the couch and under the beds and stuff like that. So you got to really get under there. Um, now, it will take at least three months of solid treatment of all pets in the household to break the flea life cycle and get clear of fleas. So if you were two months in and you're still seeing the occasional flea, it's the ones still hatching that haven't been killed off making an appearance. And just keeping steady on treatments is usually the way to go. Um, if you're getting past that three months and still seeing stuff, maybe we've got somewhere where things are breaking down. Um, you may also want to make sure that your pet still has access to all the same areas. Some people freak out when they find out they have fleas and they immediately forbid the dog or cat from going in the bedrooms, the baby's room. Um, and then the fleas end up jumping on the people and biting them instead because they're the warmest thing. Um, so you need to have a pet that is on flea control, being the flea vacuum, so to speak, collecting the fleas from the house and letting the flea control kill the fleas so the cycle stops. Um, you definitely, if you're spraying any areas inside or out with any um, 
chemicals or anything, you would definitely want to remove your pets and people from those areas while you're doing it. Um, treating the outdoors can sometimes be futile um, since you can't sterilize your yard entirely. And even wildlife like squirrels can bring in new fleas all the time. Um, but if you have a particularly bad case of fleas, there are some things you can do and times where you might consider trying to do this just to reduce numbers. Um, now, if you're going to use a pesticide, you really have to balance out the risk of parasiticides in your outdoor environment and the consequences of that with how bad of a problem you have with fleas. Um, sometimes you have to pick. Um, Ovatrol yard spray every three to four weeks in the summer and even diazinon will help. Um, and some even recommend doing like a ring around your house with fire ant killer to try and help form a barrier to, of some sort for it. Um, you can also, though, as a more natural approach, try nematodes in the yard because they'll eat flea larvae. Um, but they have a pretty strict humidity and temperature requirements, so they may not live as long to eat the larvae depending on your climate. And so sometimes you have to water more or do different things to try and um, help cultivate those nematodes. Um, but remember that the majority of these things are in your house. And so it's not always, if you're having a problem, the dogs are getting it. So the outside isn't always as big of a deal. Um, speaking of some of the natural products, um, I haven't specifically tried these, but I wanted to find some alternatives in case people just really didn't want to use the conventional products for whatever reason. Um, and even the veterinarians that use these acknowledge that some of these work best when it's not a severe situation. Um, because even 10 fleas can produce up to 250,000 new fleas in three weeks. So if you have a few fleas slip through on a treatment that's not working as effectively, you can still end up with a lot of fleas in your house. Um, but um, these would be some that you might consider. Um, Wonderside lemongrass spray, um, they say that that one can work, but it has to be applied pretty frequently, sometimes even multiple times a day, um, which this seems like it'd be a lot to do. But you could still try that. Um, they also make a yard and home product, but it's using a cedar oil. So sometimes the smell can cause some headaches in people. Um, flea busters powder, especially if you have carpet in your home, this product basically dehydrates the larva and kills them. Um, and it's one that you can use throughout the house. Um, diatomaceous earth, I really think is an outside only thing. If you're going to use it at all, um, inside use or using it on the pet, um, can increase the risk for lung fibrosis in both people and animals. Um, definitely flea comb your pets just to see if, if things are working there. I would be cautious of any natural products using pennyroyal as even small amounts of this ingested can be toxic to pets and children, even to the point of death. So I would just avoid that one. Um, I know I'm running close on time, so I'm going to cut it off here, but hopefully this gives you some ideas to work with. And thanks for your question. And remember all, while I'm a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian. My guidance is only intended to give you some ballpark info in general so you can discuss with your veterinarian your concerns more effectively and what you can likely expect from their official treatment recommendations. Thanks, Jack, and hope everyone has a great weekend. Bye. Next up, our uh, other new expert council member on mechanic stuff and cars and trucks and everything else, Derek Bonpetro, on dealing with hard starting of vehicles in cold weather. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from up in New Hampshire in the mobile studio today, out fixing generators. I have a question from Matt in upstate New York. He asks, what can I do to get my car to start in cold weather? Details. I have a 2006 Subaru Outback that will not start when the temperature is below 20 degrees. It has a reman engine with about 40,000 miles. I've tried a new battery with as many cold cranking amps as I could find that would fit. I brought the battery inside at night to keep it warm, added antifreeze, still doesn't want to start when it's really cold. I'm thinking about getting a block heater or a heated battery wrap, but neither of these will help when I'm at work. I just start the car every couple hours with a remote start so it shuts off after 15 minutes. Thanks for any suggestions you have. 
Matt, this is a tough one to figure out with the information you gave me because I really don't know if the engine's struggling and cranking over slowly, and that way it's not starting up for you, or it's just cranking at a good pace, but excessively. Cranking, 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 and it doesn't seem to catch and want to start. And so those are really two completely different avenues to explore with your vehicle not starting when it's cold. I'm going to make a couple of assumptions that really should be anybody's first guess with any kind of vehicle issues is that the maintenance has been taken care of on the vehicle. This includes making sure that the spark plugs have been replaced on time at the right interval and with a quality product. In your case, a Japanese plug being like a Denso or an NGK or an OEM equivalent. Fuel filter has been replaced recently. So things like this necessarily haven't been neglected over time and could possibly be the reason for your, your issue. Let's go down to the one where it just cranks excessively and doesn't want to catch. This could be because of a sensor that's giving an erroneous reading or dropping out at a certain temperature, which can happen. Or it could possibly be uh, software within the computer, and sometimes these are resolved with new flashes or new programming. I would hope that an 06 Subaru would have the most up-to-date computer software on it. Usually these are caught with campaigns or service bulletins earlier in a car's life. So that's an avenue to go down. You may get a little luck by calling Subaru to see if this work has been performed, as they should have a record. Uh, you may get a little bit of uh, help with you at a local dealership. They might take a look at it, plug it into their scan tool, and see if it has the most up-to-date flash on the computer. Since it's you know an 06 with lots of miles kind of outside of its normal warranty, they may want to charge you for something like this. So good luck on that end. See if somebody's willing to work with you. You didn't mention if you have any type of check engine lights that are coming on when this is occurring. This is certainly something else you'd want to look at. I would highly recommend, or anybody else that has a, a car that's made after 1996, to have a basic code reader. Uh, you, you know, you're talking 20 or $30 on Amazon for the most basic of units, and this will at least give you a code number to, to do a little more research on. If you do have a sensor, like a crank or a cam sensor that's dropping out, this will keep you from starting definitely. And you may not get it because once the engine starts, obviously the sensor is reading correctly. So having one of these code readers, if it is a sensor-related issue, plugged in while you're cranking away, you might get some information out of it. Not a guarantee, though. So those are really some steps to take if this is going to be a sensor or uh, ECM, you know, software-related issue that's keeping you from starting in sub-freezing temperatures. The reality it is any modern vehicle should not have any kind of issue starting in even the coldest of temperatures, especially if they're gasoline-powered. Diesels are a little bit more cranky to fire uh, because they're fuel gels and they rely on glow plugs or grid heaters to start in these sub-freezing temps. But any gasoline car that's, that's modern and fuel-injected, we're talking like 1980s and newer, should not have issues whatsoever unless they have any kind of mechanical problems that would keep them from starting normally. So even though putting block heaters on them, battery heaters, and possibly switching to like synthetic oils may assist them to start easier in sub-freezing temperatures and certainly make your engine's life a little bit easier, should not necessarily be a requirement in anywhere in like North America. You mentioned that you put a new battery in, so I'm going to make an assumption in that your battery is a proper size, fully charged, and it's not a questionable item. Always something to check. This would be one of the first starting places for anybody with a cranking issue in cold temperatures. Battery seems to be always the first go-to to look at. 
if you don't have a battery tester or a voltmeter, you can certainly remove it and bring it to you know one of the big box stores like an AutoZone, and they can test it for you. I even think they'll check it for you in the parking lot for free if you shop around. Now, I don't want to get into a, a basic electricity class. This segment's going to be a little too short for that, but a battery that's fully charged will read about 12.6 to 12.8 volts if you're using a voltmeter. If you're not familiar with using a voltmeter, I would highly suggest buying a digital one. It doesn't have to be crazy fluke or anything like that. Get a cheap, inexpensive, basic unit and learn how to measure things like voltage. Now, if this is a cranking issue, meaning that it's cranking at a much lower RPM than normal when it's cold out, and we know the battery is good, we want to definitely make sure that the starting circuit is working correctly. Now I'm going to also assume that the engine doesn't have any kind of mechanical issues based on the fact that it's remanufactured with low miles. If you had a piston that was starting to seize up or anything like that that's going to cause restriction on the engine, that's going to keep it cranking over slowly, but not necessarily just when it's cold. That would be more of all the time. So I would, I would say you're good on that end of it and probably going to be more just starting circuit issues. Now, as a starter fails, it can certainly draw more current from the battery and crank over slowly, especially when it's cold out. That's certainly an avenue to look at. If you use a voltmeter to check your battery voltage and have an assistant crank the engine over, you really shouldn't drop below 9.6. That's kind of industry standard for lowest voltage on the battery while cranking over. Uh, I would certainly want to see it a little bit higher than that, but if we're talking sub-freezing temperatures, it could possibly go down to that. Definitely not below it. This means that you'd be putting the red lead on the positive terminal and the black lead on the negative terminal, and then having an assistant crank the engine over. Now, you would certainly want to have good communication with them because you don't want to have your hands in the engine bay in a bad spot while they're cranking the engine over. So establish a safe communications and that the one in the engine bay is the one in control. Another cause for the starter to be cranking over slowly would be a voltage drop on either the positive or the negative side. So that starter needs battery positive voltage coming in from the large red lead going to the starter motor and then it completes its ground path back to the negative side of the battery through the engine block. Now on the positive side you could have corrosion on the battery terminal, you could have corrosion on the red lead that goes to the starter motor itself. We certainly want to do a visual inspection there. And we can also do the voltage drop test. That means red lead on the battery positive terminal, and the black lead goes on the terminal where the large red wire goes into the starter. So you're going to read volts, have an assistant crank the engine over, and we're looking for less than a tenth of a volt. That's 0.1 volts dropping on that side of the circuit. If you have more than that, that means you have corrosion or a bad lead, and so voltage is dropping before it even gets to the starter motor to be consumed. So that's certainly something that can happen, is common, and would be looking at. On the negative side, power is going to go through the engine block, through the negative terminal, back to the negative side of the battery. Now, this is done using ground straps. You might have a braided ground strap that goes from the engine block to the firewall or the body. You're also going to have black cables that go from the engine block directly back to the battery as well. We want to visually inspect these to make sure that none of them have rotted off. The braided ones typically do right at the ends. Uh, so definitely check this for corrosion as well. You might also get some other telltales like dim lights and things that are kind of happening uh, funky with gauges and whatnot inside the car with bad grounds, but we should definitely be looking these at these as well. Do the voltage drop test. Go right. Red lead on the casing of the starter motor 
and then the black lead on the negative side of the battery post, crank the engine over. Again, we shouldn't get more than like a tenth of a volt drop. Most likely, if it's cranking slowly, probably going to be a starter motor that's failed. Go through your checks, see if you can determine which one it is. If it's a starter motor, let's talk very briefly about looking at parts. You can go to a dealership and buy one brand new off the shelf. It's going to be hundreds of dollars. You know it's going to be OEM quality, but you don't want to spend that much money. So what you want to do now if you're going to replace the starter motor, and you want to find all the listings for your vehicle. I personally like to go to Rock Auto, that's R-O-C-K-Auto.com, plug your vehicle info in, and then find starter motor. It's going to give you the list of everybody that makes one for you, or the most common ones. Now, when you're scrolling through this list, you're going to find the cheap ones at the top, economical, and then you're going to probably find the OEM quality ones down towards the bottom. Now, since you have a Japanese vehicle, I would bet that yours is made by Denso from the factory, and so I would look at this replacement as being the best quality. Now, if you buy it on Rock Auto, it's around $150. You'll get a core charge out of this once you return the old one, and this will give you an OEM quality starter without paying almost double the price at the dealership. Now, you can get cheaper brand new models or remand models, but just be aware that you're getting a cheaper component. You can avoid the dealership by getting the same part by looking these up online. Now, Rock Auto may have the best price, but what I typically like to do is take that part number, throw it into Amazon. Although Amazon consistently has not been the best source for parts, personally, you'd be amazed at what you find on there. So throw that number in there, see if it's available on Prime, you might get a better deal. I also like to take that part number and throw it into a Google search. These are the three ways that I look for parts to get the best pricing. I personally, even if Amazon's a few bucks more, they handle returns way easier than anybody else, so I will sacrifice and pay a couple bucks more. But if anybody else is far cheaper, obviously go with them. Matt, I hope this helps in giving you a guide to kind of troubleshoot your system further. Always jump online and try to find forums that are Subaru-specific. You can get a lot more information that's vehicle-specific and uh, maybe a little bit help further troubleshooting your system once you get some answers. Good luck and looking forward to the next question. Take care, guys. Good stuff. And, and like you said, it's kind of tough to figure out sometimes. I want to do something here with questions. I know I'm really a stickler about the whole bottom line up front thing. When you ask a question, I want that question as a single sentence. A phrase is good. The more you can condense down the actual question, the better. But when you have something that's complex, feel free to give as many details as you want. Just put the question first, and, and that way I or whoever's answering the question uh, can dig into it. And I'm also, like, here's another thing that I, you know, when I brought uh, Derek and Steve on the expert council, it was kind of like a quick thing. I realized I found two quality guys, and I didn't take the time to fully brief them Know this, folks, when you send me a question for the expert counsel, generally I tell them if they need more information to, to answer your question, to reach out to you. So you might want to look out once in a while for if you send a question in to come over to you uh, with some specific questions. I know one of the people that is the absolute best about doing that on the council is Stephen Harris. He's gone as far as calling people and spending friggin' an hour on the phone with them to understand fully what they're asking. That's above and beyond the call. Frankly, I won't do that. I, I don't have time. <laughs> But anyway, um, you know, I do ask that. So I will make sure. I, I let Derek and Steve know that they're official members of the council uh, after their first two kind of auditionary uh, responses. 
and I will make sure I get them a full briefing so they're kind of on the same page with everybody else. Get them introduced into the fold, too, of that tight-knit group that is the expert council. Uh, speaking of tight-knit groups and really awesome dudes on the council, how about John Pugliano? He's going to answer a question here for us on bank interest rates, specifically these higher interest rates on things like savings accounts that we're seeing right now, and are they sustainable? ATSP listeners, today we have a financial question from Jake in Western New York. And Jake is asking a question that I've talked about in some previous segments of TSP, but market conditions have changed here slightly. And so I want to do an update on this. And since Jake has asked the question, I think it's a good time to talk about it. Jake asks, do you believe the yield percentages for online savings accounts are sustainable? The reason he asked that is he's seeing a lot of advertisements from places like Goldman Sachs or Citizens Bank where they're offering upwards of 2.3% on just a traditional savings account. And he wonders if that's sustainable because anybody that's following interest rates knows that right now the 10-year treasury is under 2.7. So basically a bank is offering you an overnight deposit rate within just a few basis points of what you'd be paid if you took the long-term duration of a 10-year treasury. So, hey, what's up with that, and is it sustainable? Jake, I've talked about this in some past segments on TSP. I did want to answer your question again, though, because the situation, the landscape has changed a little bit in terms of bank yields, and that's because the Fed has now taken a more moderate approach to things. Now, what all that has to do with your local bank interest rate is that the banking business is very competitive. And particularly for someone that's an upstart like Goldman Sachs, you know, Goldman Sachs has been known for investment banking, but in recent years, they're trying to move into more of the retail loan type business. And to do that, they have to give people a reason to want to put their deposits with Goldman Sachs. And so what they're trying to do is attract new clients with higher interest rates than, say, you would get at Chase or Citibank or somewhere else. Now, how sustainable is all this? Well, It depends because what these banks are doing by offering these aggressive rates is they're just trying to front run and get ahead of where they think interest rates are moving. They feel that they can be aggressive by offering higher rates to get new customers, and they think it's low risk because in the near-term future, they think that interest rates are headed higher anyways, and so they're just really trying to get ahead of the curve. Now, that all made a lot of sense last year when rates were increasing, But now that the Federal Reserve is taking more of a dovish approach and being more patient, that's likely to mean that not only are interest rates not going to rise as much in the future, but there are even people now that are talking about the Federal Reserve having to cut back on interest rates if the economy slows down anymore. So that would put rates in a whole different direction. And at that point, you can bet that these variable rates are going to become much lower and drop very quickly. So it really all comes down to where are interest rates headed. Um, I do want to emphasize here that what these banks are doing, it's not a gimmick. It's not nefarious. They're just trying to attract as many new customers as they can. And when they thought interest rates were going up, they were jumping on that bandwagon. Jake, I'd also add in that I do think there's a better option to getting a higher interest rate without having to chase all these individual bank accounts because you never know which bank is going to have the best offer. So what I'd suggest is if you have an account at a discount broker, ask your broker what the highest rates are being paid on their cash equivalent mutual funds. Now note the phrase I used there. I said cash equivalent mutual fund, not a cash equivalent money market fund. There's a slight difference there. It has to do with the revisions that were made to the banking laws back in 2008. And it didn't used to be important because interest rates were so incredibly low. You know, we were near zero for a decade. 
but the Federal Reserve's aggressive actions have really pushed up short-term interest rates over the past year. And now in some cases, you're seeing these cash-equivalent mutual funds paying substantially higher rates than you'd receive in a traditional money market fund or at your local bank account. Personally, I use Charles Schwab as my discount broker, and they offer a mutual fund called SWVXX. It's a variable rate. It's paying somewhere around that 2.3%, maybe a little less now that interest rates have pulled back slightly. But it offers a very competitive rate. There's no transaction fees to move in or out of it. There's no minimum balances. It has no time limitations or durations as to how often you can move in and out of it. It just trades like any other mutual fund. So it's extremely liquid. I'd encourage you to talk to your discount broker and look for something like that. Jake, thanks for your question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. One of those um, I totally agree uh, things where I don't have much to add about the thing itself, but I also have another way to put this for people. Um, when it comes to money that you're holding in, in, in that type of thing, a straight cash hold, uh, generally Now, early on in young, you may actually have a fairly significant cash position relative to the whole because you may be following what John and I teach, which is don't even worry that much about investing. If you have a 401k with a company match or something, yeah, that's fine. But, you know, when you're early 20s, you're young and you're working your ass off, the number one thing you can do instead of fretting over which stock to buy when you only have a couple thousand bucks to invest is work harder and make more money and just stock it away. And when you get up in the neighborhood about 30 grand, that's when you need to start looking either to manage your own money or find a good money manager. And it's a little hard at that rate, but if you look hard, you can find somebody that can help you. Um, and then start you know, more channeling your investments. So for a lot of people, the cash that you have on hand will not be as significant as the money you spend each year. And as you guys know, I am not a fan of credit cards. I do not like credit cards. I used to be a complete credit card, anti-credit card Nazi. I've softened my stance. Some things have changed in the 10 years, 11 years almost now, that we've been doing this show. Uh, including the fact that, you know, back people say, well, you need a, a credit card to, to rent a car. And I was like, no, you don't. And for five years, I was right. And then it really got to where it starts to become now they don't want to do it. And it makes it really hard. It can cost you a lot more money. So I broke down and got credit. After not having a credit card for eight years, I broke down and got one. Um, but you can also do this. You check with your bank and look for debit cards that have this feature. I use my PayPal debit card all the time to pay for stuff. I Without running it, without using it as a credit card, but running it as a credit card. So here's what I mean by that. When you have a debit card, it'll have like a Visa or MasterCard logo on it. You'll notice that when you go to a store, they, they call it steering. They'll move you towards enter your PIN. And if you enter a PIN, it gets run as a debit. If you sign, it gets run as credit. And, of course, there's a fee to the merchant to run that as a credit card. That's how credit card companies make their money. Uh, I don't care about their fee. Their price is their price. They're the one that said it. If they want to offer me a discount to pay with cash or debit, then we'll talk. You set the same price for everybody, I'm more worried about me than you, and it's more convenient for me to sign than it is for me to enter a six-digit PIN number, just to be blunt. So with my PayPal debit card, whenever I buy something with it, I always run it as credit, and I get 1% back. That's like getting 1% interest on money you don't have. And you might find, I've not really looked, but there may be a bank out there that has a debit card that maybe has a 1.5% if run as a credit card or 2%. I don't know. 
And when people are getting 2% interest rates and you could be making 2% on all the money you spend, I think it's worth looking into. There are some credit cards that do even better than that. Some with qualifying purchases, some with all purchases, etc. This is how soft I'll get. This is as soft as I'm going to be with the whole credit card points, cashback, airline miles thing. If you work for a, a, a company and you use your credit card and yet expenses are reimbursed, or you're running a business where you're doing that internally, but it works the same way, the company's reimbursing you through your credit card, that you, then, then you can do whatever you want with credit cards because that, that's covered. I'm not worried about it. If you are completely out of debt, if you have no credit card debt, if the only thing you owe money on is a house and I'll give you a car, but you don't have any student loan, you're not trying to climb out of the debt hole. And you have lived responsibly without debt for at least a year. And you have experienced the free, especially if you were in debt and got out. You've been through the crucible. And you get strategic and you figure out, I can get 3% back on this stuff here. So I'm going to get a credit card for this stuff here. And I'm going to be religious and rigorous to the point where I cannot incur late fee or interest on this money. I am going to pay the bill as it occurs on the other side. And that gives you 3% back. If it's worth your time to do it that way, go ahead. Go ahead. But I think one of the easy layups that's out there right now is finding debit cards that can be run as credit cards that are taking the money right out of a checking account, savings account, money market account, whatever, that pay a cash back incentive. And I would, and I would say with that, You then pay every stinking bill that will take a credit card with it. If you can pay your electric company and you get 2% cash back, I just cut your electric bill by 2%. And I know a lot of people say it's only 2%, it's only 1%. The people that say that are the ones that end up broke or retire near broke. They're the people that end up, you know, maybe they do a little better so they're three paychecks from poverty instead of one. Because it's the little shit that adds up over time, over and over and over again in compounds. Imagine right now, if especially if you're, let's say, 40 years old, if somebody were to give you a check for 2% of 50% of all the money you've ever spent in your life. Well, you could have given it to yourself incrementally over time. So just wanted to add that as another way of seeing this particular issue. Uh, next up, we have a question for old Dr. Bones on replenishing gut bacteria after a course of antibiotics. Hi, Joe Holden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help Is Not On The Way. Our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics in Austere Settings, and also an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel goes like this. Quick question for you, Doc Bones, or Nurse Amy of old age finally got Doc. Boy, did it. Well, what would you advise to get healthy bacteria back in line after antibiotics? Is one kind better than another kind? I recently had an injury and was put on clindamycin. After about five days, it looked like I was going to get an infection and doxycycline was added. So you were on two different antibiotics. Once the doxycycline is finished, what do you advise for a round of probiotics? Looks to me that I'm healing up nicely. 
I'll see my doc in a few days. And the infection seems to be slowly going away. So I think I'm going to make it, although I can now only count to 9 and 15 sixteenths as a small piece of my finger is missing. Well, been there, done that. Work with your hands, get hand injuries. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about reestablishing a healthy gut. Certain drugs and medical procedures can do a number on your intestinal bacteria. Your body contains trillions of bacteria that live on and in us, and indeed there are more bacterial cells in and on your body than human cells. The bacteria in your intestines are beneficial in many ways. They aid digestion, they protect against foodborne illnesses, just to mention a couple of things. These helpful creatures can be wiped out by infectious disease, but also by the treatment for infectious disease, antibiotics, and maybe other drugs. When this happens, you got to restore those beneficial intestinal flora as quickly as you possibly can. The foods that you eat after antibiotic therapy will determine how quickly your normal bacteria recover. One, you should consider cultured foods, fermented foods, uh, yogurt, kefir, miso, kimchi, sauerkraut, other naturally pickled vegetables. Each of them contains different types of probiotic bacteria. It is difficult to declare certain probiotic foods as better than others. In fact, the diversity of your gut bacteria may matter more than any one individual species, so it may be best to eat as many different cultured and fermented foods as you possibly can. Another thing that may help is prebiotic foods. You want to make sure that you reestablish normal bacteria and you need to make them comfortable, maybe make them want to stay there by serving up plenty of fiber-rich foods, especially soluble fibers, things like beans, legumes, oat bran, flax, apples, chia seeds, things like that. And don't forget the power of raw vegetables. Fresh fruit, raw vegetables... Good sources of fiber, when you eat them raw, you're more likely to get some of the microbes that live in the soil where they are grown. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't wash them first, though. Make sure you wash them. But as a graduate of the Master Gardener program for the state of Florida, I recommend starting that vegetable garden. Plant some lettuce, spinach, and radishes and eat them raw. Things you want to avoid in the first few days include, well, sugar. No more than 25 grams a day would be best. That's not easy, but the bacteria that like refined sugars aren't the ones that you want in your gut. Undercooked foods, things like undercooked eggs, eggs over easy, seafood that's not cooked well or raw are also a no-no. Steer clear of those for a while due to the risk of, of reinfection. Some people say to decrease your intake of red meat and tune no more than twice a week. Although we are used to a red meat diet, our caveman ancestors probably didn't get to eat it daily unless they were lucky killed a mammoth or something. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook and our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, and don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets 10% off anything in our store with their special coupon code. Thanks again. One just real quick addition there before I go into my segments today. Um, he talked about, you know, make sure you wash the food out of your garden. I understand why he's saying that. He's saying that because he can't possibly know what you're doing in your garden, even if you think you're using best practices and being all organic and everything like that. But part, I'm, gonna tell you, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm going to tell you what I do. When I bring in anything that I've grown outside, if it has dirt on it or if I think there's anything that could have gotten on it that I shouldn't consume, I wash it. In general, I don't. 
And it's it's funny to me because I watch people that would get all in a wad about that. Oh my God, you oh, wash your lettuce, uh, and you're like, okay, all right. And then you watch them, and they mimic what I do all the time. You watch them in their videos, even people that I've seen people say this in YouTube videos. And they go outside and they're walking along. They go, oh, look at that pepper. And they pull the pepper off the plant and they start eating it. So if you pull the pepper off the plant and eat it, it's okay. But if you pull the pepper off the plant and take it in the house, now you have to wash it. So, I mean, the way I look at it, I walk through my property, especially I'm excited. We're heading back into spring again. I should have a really great year growing stuff this year. And I walk around both the, the wild uh, stuff that grows here, like wild garlic and the flowers on the locust trees and stuff like that, plums on the plum trees, et cetera, and the stuff I'm growing like lettuces and arugula. I pull that stuff right off and graze through my landscape. I'll take a walk and come back full, right? And I, I think it's awesome to be able to do that. And if you think about it, What I've tried to talk about a lot on the on the show over the years is kind of the, the being a modern hunter gatherer, and that not necessarily mean we have to roam off onto you know, deep into the forest. That if we cultivate our property the right way, that you can basically roam and eat as you go on your own property, and it's really cool. Well, what's really really cool about it, if you want to talk about primal nutrition, if you want to talk about the way indigenous peoples and our ancestors lived. This is exactly that. Now, if I dig a sweet potato up out of one of my wicking beds, it's covered in dirt. I'm going to wash it as much for the fact that I don't want to eat dirt as though there might be something there to harm me. Um, but when it comes to stuff that's above ground, you know, unless you're spraying it with cow pee or something, I don't wet manure tea or something, then I just eat it. And I think that actually is probably a good thing for internal body chemistry. All right, so uh, for my segment today, I wanted to float an idea. I, I'm going to tell you right up front, this is just a fun topic, and it probably won't go anywhere. I'm kind of reluctant to do this, because whenever I've done any kind of joint project with people or whatever, it's always been the case that other people don't actually do the part they're supposed to do. But I threw out a post on Facebook today just to see where this would go. And I, I thought with all the heavy stuff we talk about, even some of the stuff that's not bad, just as always, you know, Jack telling you to hustle, get a get a side hustle going, build a business, whatever. But we just have some fun. Right? So this is what I this is what I posted today and uh, it which it'll show you the first uh, comment will show you how how challenging this might be. I said pretend we were going to start a version of the Onion, or Babylon B, but perhaps be less political. Let's come up with headlines for satire-type articles that are really influenced by fact. Then you get bonus points if you give an intro sentence to the article to follow. I will start. <laughs> Receiving a this gift in response to a comment is the highest compliment you can be paid on the Internet. Palo Alto, California, February 15, 2019. The National Internet Foundation, NIF, made official today what we all knew already in our hearts. For those that don't know what that means, if you get on Facebook, you'll see that there's a GIF feature, which is where you can, and I know some people call it a GIF, right? It's a GIF, it's with a G. And you you can basically use little, little tiny movies, basically, little moving pictures to make something. And when somebody makes a really good comment... 
You can click GIF, and you, there's a whole bunch, if you type in this, of like somebody pointing up, and it says this, like you agree with it. So that was mine, right? And I'm not saying it's really good. I'm just saying that was an idea that I had for one. Then Christopher said, Seattle starts civil war due to global warming. And uh, I said, well, that stayed not political for three seconds. And uh, <laughs> then he came up with a better one. He said, uh, grocery stores empty amongst snowflake invasion. Uh, that was, that was uh, pretty good. Um, then Mike said, Pluto sues for reinstatement as a planet. And I said, well, I like that. We could put in you know, something like Neil deGrasse Tyson faces serious grilling in initial deposition. Uh, and then uh, Mike says, proponents for the reinstatement have formed a gang and launched protests from their clubhouse to keep their anonymity. They have dressed as mice, a duck, and a dog. This just in, they now seem to be in possession of alien technology in the form of a supercomputer. Experts believe this tech to be called toodles. And it goes on from there. Uh, going back to politics, Shane says, AOC introduces a bill to force cows to take Beano to eliminate cow farts. AOC is quoted as saying, well, the commercial says that if there's Beano, there'll be no gas. I think that would be best. Okay. Right? Uh, Jeremy says, NASA states we have lost the technology to go to the moon. Oh, wait. That's not satire. Now, Brad, Brad sticking to, let's try to do this. Let's stay away from politics as much as we can. Roadkill deer remembered as frantic and indecisive. That's that's a great one. Uh, this is this is this just another addition to the mass murder of squirrels. Mark has started a march to end the senseless violence. Uh, Jason says politician objects to the statement made by his colleague, who was merely quoting him from two years ago. I said you broke the political thing but in a badass way, so you get bonus points. I like this one from Nathan. Non-custodial father now identifies as woman, wins custody of children as their new mother, and now receives child support. Yeah, there's a, some, some you know reality there. Um, has anyone seen Liam Nielsen? Apparently his acting career was just taken after recent comments were deemed insensitive. Tesla announces new spokesperson for their next generation of self-driving vehicle, the Tesla Model H. And the picture is David Hasselhoff, yes, of Knight Rider fame. And there's some more. Um, and then Jake says, also if we're starting a satire site, it should be called The Teaspoon as a nod to TSP. New York, Samantha Cufford, I, I, I love this, man. New York Times best-selling author hits another one out of the park. New York City, February 15, 2019. Tom Smith, best-selling author of How to Adult, A Beginner's Guide, and Adulting Like a Pro, has released his latest self-help book, So You Are an Adult, Now What? Uh, <laughs> I put in, Oxford comma is offended that good writers don't need it. So uh, this is uh, HOA Hell, Satan Sells House in Jersey. I can't take it anymore from Brad. Okay, that's awesome. Satan sells his house because he can't deal with an HOA. It's just too much to be in New Jersey and an HOA at the same time. So I don't know if any of those were home runs, but I think there's some good ideas there. I, I, I 
want to hear from you guys, and I want to know, is there anybody out there that would, like, if we created a blog, because, I mean, I could do this for a few hundred dollars, that was kind of like The Onion or Babylon Bee or any of these satires, would anybody be interested in doing some of this stuff? And I'll, I'll tell you why I think it makes sense. I think there's actually an opportunity to educate people with this kind of satire, especially if you can pull it off a little bit smarter, and I think it could be fun. And I mean, I don't know, if you had... If you had 20 people doing it, and everybody wrote one a, a month, that would be a pretty cool little site. I don't know that it would ever make any money. And it's just something I thought I would share, and, and I'd like your thoughts on it. And I, I think good satire is, is, is fun because everybody gets it if you actually read it, but it's actually hard to pull it off as the creator of it. it it's difficult to pull it off. It was challenging. One of the reasons I said I don't want to get political when I put this out today is to try to to challenge people a little bit. Because I think if you do a site like this, you have to get political. I think because it's just there's there's so much in life that shows the stupidity of mankind through politics that I think you have to have a political section, right? I just think you do. But um, by 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 saying you can't or try not to, it makes you think outside of the box. You know, um, Satan sells house in Jersey. I can't take it anymore. I mean, come on, see. And if you don't put that restriction on it then Brad doesn't come up with that, right? Brad comes up with something else about AOC or Trump or, you know, left-wing or right-wing snowflakes. Well, there's something there. Left-wing and right-wing snowflake meet each other, instantly melt. I don't know, right? So I, I just thought maybe we'd end this Friday with something a little bit fun and a little bit different. So I hope you guys enjoyed that segment. I know it maybe wasn't the most productive one, But if it put a smile or two on your face going into a weekend, you can you know you know hook that up with a good drink tonight. I think I did my job this week. With that, let's go ahead and uh, remind you if you like the show and the work that we do, you can help support us uh, by either joining the member support brigade. And this is your you know Friday. The email goes out has a discount code in it. If you're listening to this and you haven't gotten on the email list, do it now because it may come again someday, but it won't be there Monday, I promise you. Uh, but do consider joining the MSV and help support us. The other thing you can do is your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You guys are all familiar with it. Um, I do have a pretty cool little device for you guys today as my item of the day. It is the universal cell phone tripod mount. It is eight bucks. It's a little plastic billy whopper that goes on any standard photographic video type tripod. And this is what I like about it. It rotates. So you can do vertical or horizontal. And I know you're thinking, Jack hates VVS. Some of you are going, what the hell is VVS? VVS is vertical video syndrome. That's when people hold their phone vertical to do a video to go on like YouTube or Facebook. Now, if you're streaming live on Facebook, you have to. They make you. But, I mean, honestly, we all TV sets, right, and all movie screens are horizontal. That's the way we see the world. We don't see the world vertical. You know, if you take your two hands like you're praying, pull them a few inches apart, and look through them like that's how you see the world, that's not how we see the world, is it? You take them apart, and that's how we see the world, right? So that's why, but, uh, you know, when, we, the, when I found this little gadget is when uh, Dorothy and I decided to start at the Instagram channel. Uh, it's a Jack Life. And Instagram also makes you film vertical because it's really for mobile devices. And I get vertical video on a phone. I really understand it. When you're, you know, you're holding your phone the way you always do, there's a vertical video. I, I get it. Um, so we found this thing, and I was like, eight bucks, man. This thing must suck. 
But the reviews are really good, and I got it. It is very well made. It is plastic, but it's very well made. And a lot of you are probably thinking about creating some kind of a content creation business. I'll tell you, when you see my videos on YouTube where I'm like sitting behind my desk or I'm sitting outside on my porch or something, and I'm just sitting there talking to the camera, I'm using this thing, a little tripod, and a little remote control. That's like a $5 remote control to turn it on and off. Or I just reach out and tap the thing. You can run a whole YouTube channel with nothing but this in your phone. So check it out. Eight bucks, good investment, good quality. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today is from way, way, way back in the day, man. This is, uh, well, it's, it's the kind of song that when, you know, I hear that first guitar riff come in, I think of my, my first car. My first car was a 1975 Pontiac Grand Prix with a 455 in it and a four-barrel Rochester Quadrajet uh, carburetor. And if you drove it as fast as you could up a steep enough hill, I swear to God, you could actually watch the gas needle move down. That's the kind of gas guzzler it was. It wasn't a great car. I busted my ass for it, and I bought it for $300 cash. Um, but the first investment I made in it was I went my ass down to Radio Shack, and I got me some 6 by 9 speakers. And kind of their 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 top of the line uh, company brand whatever it was called I don't remember at the time stereo head and a 80 watt amplifier and I installed that and next thing you know my car was blasting some heavy metal music and one of my favorite bands to play just to annoy other people because I was a young jerk at the time was Judas Priest man I love me some Priest this is called Electric Eye. It was released in 1982, and I'm going to warn you, if you listen to this while you're driving and you have a car that's kind of a speedy car, it's the kind of music that can make you drive your car faster than you should, so think about that. You're older now. You know better. Um, but Electric Eyes is an interesting song, especially for this song. It's to think about. Electric Eyes are really talking about satellites, because in 1982, that was the most invasive spy-type technology that we had. And But it was really more about government as a whole looking into your life, spying on you, tracking you, seeing what you're doing. And, I, I, you know, John Adams said this, too. I wonder back when this was released if they had any idea how deep it would get, how intensive it would get. There's almost nothing you can do anymore without being monitored in some way. That's what this song's about. And it's also just a kick-ass piece of music for going into a weekend. So I hope you enjoyed a little bit different of an ending today, just a little bit of fun once in a while. With that, I hope you enjoy your weekend. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.